What is it about Easter that gives us hope? Why do we need hope? What would happen if we didn't have Easter? When I was in seminary, I worked with a man named Enoch Follett. And Enoch was, at that time, 83. He was born in 1899, so that was back in 1983. And Enoch was uh, a very godly man. We got to be very close. He was probably... uh, Separate from my family and my, my dear wife, he was probably the thing that gave me the most joy and the most spiritual uh, help during my years in seminary. And uh, there are a number of things about Enoch that taught me spiritually. One of the things, though, I remember about Enoch was that his life at that point was a life of decline. And the decline had hit him in many ways. He had been the pianist and organist at the little Baptist church there in uh, Manchester by the sea. But his fingers had been so crippled by arthritis that he wasn't able to play the piano anymore, so he had to give that job up. And uh, he was the gardener on this estate where I worked. Actually, I was the gardener and he was the gardener. And about the only thing he could do anymore in the garden, and he loved gardening, was to sort the tubers every fall and every spring, Um, work on the roses because they stood high, and so he didn't have to get down on his knees to work on them. Uh, But his fingers and his joints were so bad that there were very few things he still could do. He basically sat in the the sofa in the kitchen uh, and watched over the house. I guess he was uh, one of the many alarm systems and the the people that I worked for knew that people would not come in and steal things from them when Enoch was there. Anyhow, one day I was down in the basement and uh, Enoch called me over to him. He said, hey boy, come here. And so I came across the basement to him and he said something like, a little help please. And he pointed down to his zipper. And I looked down there and the zipper, he'd been to the bathroom and the zipper was open. And what he was asking me to do was to zip up his zipper. Well, when a man asks another man to zip up his zipper, you know that you're in decline. Because that's about the last thing any man wants to ask another man to do. And Enoch and I didn't have a relationship that made it easy for him to ask me that. So I zipped up his zipper for him. And it was the only time it ever happened. I don't know why that day he was having trouble. I'm thankful that he didn't have trouble after that day. Um, not because I minded, but because I knew he did. Um, But I remember what he said as soon as I zipped up his zipper. He said, boy, you never miss the water until the well runs dry. And I've often thought of that since then about um, many different things, how we take for granted the blessings that God the Father pours down on us every day. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Uh, Ingratitude is a very serious sin, we're told in Romans chapter 1. But I want to focus today on what would happen to us, what would it mean for us if Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead? Where would we be? So to see that, I'd like you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because that's the subject that the Apostle Paul deals with here. First Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 12. This is a great resurrection chapter of Scripture. And uh, 
it's hard to know which part to preach on, but I'm going to begin this morning our study with verse 12 and read a few verses. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. And so Paul is dealing here with the Corinthian church on what is uh, doctrinally, certainly, the most serious error of the church. It's very interesting to think about the church in Corinth and to think about how corrupt it was. It was a really corrupt church. Think about it for a second. It was a church that had uh, some man sleeping with his father's wife. It was a church that had split loyalties between the senior pastor and the first associate pastor. Now, it probably wasn't that, but it was something like that. It's, it's Paul and Apollos. And they had divisions, and they chose which one that they had their allegiance to. Uh, they were very proud. They made a big deal out of their ability to, uh, to, uh, to uh, speak in tongues, and anything that was extravagant in terms of spiritual gifts, they were very proud about. Um, there were a ton of problems with Corinth. And uh, then here we see that one of their problems is that in this church, they were denying the resurrection. Now, all of the other problems, you can kind of understand them being in a church. The incest one is a little bit bad, but... You know, some churches do get that bad. But when we get to the resurrection, I think we have a real problem understanding that. Because it just doesn't seem to make any sense at all. You know, can you imagine going to church where there are people that are actually teaching that there is no resurrection? It just seems ludicrous. 
Why would anybody go to church who didn't believe in the resurrection? Isn't that the whole point? Don't celebrate Easter or they celebrate Easter and what? Well, we don't really know what exactly it was that they didn't didn't believe. Um, there are a lot of theories about what was going on as to why they were denying the resurrection. One theory is that uh, it all came out of the denial of the resurrection that was at the center of Judaism at the time through the Sadducees. The Sadducees in Acts 23, 6 uh, the Apostle Paul is trying to divide and conquer. He's in a big conflict. And it says there in Acts 23, verse 6, perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And uh, as he said this, there occurred, guess what? A dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. So some people believe that what's going on here is that Sadducees had come into the church and they were you know, restoring this old division. Uh, we don't know. Another possibility is that uh, there was uh, a group of philosophers at the time called the Epicureans, in Acts 17, verse 18, we read some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Because, and then the, the editorial note, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So the Stoics and the Epicureans, you know, very sophisticated ancient philosophers, uh, it's strange deities if you, if you preach the resurrection. So maybe they had some very sophisticated philosophers in the church that were saying, you guys, that's just twisted. Some would say that it's just the typical prejudices of the ancient world that we see coming out in Athens when Paul preached to the Areopagus. In Acts 17.32, we read that when he, Paul, got to the end of his sermon, and it says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. And so in the ancient world, uh, we know that there was quite a common thing, particularly among the sophisticates, to deny the resurrection. In fact, we see that this is in the church in another place in 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18. It says, Paul, speaking of those whose, quote, talk will spread like gangrene among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. And we all know that those aren't good um, people, right? I mean, you know that. Nobody names their son Philetus, right? Nobody names their son Hymenaeus, right? And the reason is why. Well, you don't know. You just know they're bad, like Jezebel, although we kind of remember what Jezebel did. All right? And it says in verse 18, men who have, referring to Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, what? saying that the resurrection has already taken place. And so, again, here we have this in the church. Now, what does it tell you to know that there are all these different options? It doesn't really tell you much, does it? Because the, the thing that you need to know is in the text. And what you know from the text is that some denied the resurrection. Now, so why did I bring all that up? Well, because as you study the Bible you're going to be browbeaten by scholars who are going to tell you that unless you understand the context within which that text was written, 
unless you understand what was going on at the church at the time, you won't understand what the Holy Spirit's saying here in 1 Corinthians 15. So you need to do cultural studies and find out what the Sitzim Laban was. Does that sound neat? The situation at the time, all right? And what's going on in the evangelical church today is that there is a very powerful aristocracy. And it's, it's people who uh, are, in many ways, chaining the Bible back to the pulpit, but this time doing it through academic degrees and disciplines. So that what we're being told is that we can't know what the Bible means in any particular place until we have sat at the feet of scholars who will give us the situation at the time, and then we'll know what the text really means. Now, let me give you an example. You know where the Bible tells us that Little boys should never get out of bed once they've been put to bed. Now, it doesn't say that. It's a joke. But you know where it says that, right? What the scholar will do is the scholar will say to you, uh, what you need to understand about the time is that in the ancient world, there were actually lions that were underneath all the beds. And if after the light was turned out, any little boy would ever step on the floor... He was a goner. And so we don't need to worry about stepping out of our beds today because there's no lions in our bedrooms. And so we learn that the scholars, what? Well, they release us from the Scriptures, you see? Because after all, we all know there are no lions under our beds today. Although when I was little, there were lions under my bed I distinctly remember it, and I never, ever even let my feet dangle out of the side of my bed when I was a little boy. And also, there were bears that would eat me if I ever stepped on the lines instead of the squares. I actually still do that. (laughs) I never step on the lines unless I make a, a decision to step on the lines. Okay, what's the point? Well, the point is that the Bible is God's Word. The Bible is God's Word. All of the cultural studies and all the books written about the cultural context are not God's Word. Does that mean they're false? No, it doesn't mean they're false. But it means that we need to be very careful not assuming a position of superiority over the actual text of God's Word because the the scholars have given a place to stand in judgment of it. Do you understand this? This is a whole host of things that you can learn from people that give their lives to studying the ancient world that can make you feel that you're superior to the text of Scripture. And so, for instance, right here, you know, we can look at this and we can say, Well, you know, really, this doesn't have anything to do with me because, you know, I mean, I don't question the resurrection. And I doubt that there's really probably more than one or two people here this morning that question the resurrection. I mean, we really don't have that cultural context today. And so let's move on to a passage that's more pertinent to our lives, right? Be very, very careful not to allow scholars to do to Scripture today what the Roman Catholic Church did in the Middle Ages. There are many ways of chaining the Bible to the pulpit. 
and making it my prerogative to tell you what it means because I've studied the ancient cultural context. And, and so no one ever has confidence opening their Bible and reading it because until you know that there used to be lions under the bed, then you can't know why the Bible tells you not ever to get out of bed after your mother leaves the bedroom and turns the light out. Here's what the Princeton theologian Charles Hodge says when he gets done discussing the different possibilities for this doctrine in the Corinthian church. He says this, quote, he says, the decision of the question as to what particular class of persons the opponents of the doctrine of the resurrection belong to happily is of no importance in the interpretation of the apostles argument. That's the kind of Princeton theologian I like. Happily, it's of no importance. I do not mean to say that it never matters to study the cultural context. You can't begin to understand Jesus' statement, I am the good shepherd, until you have some knowledge of sheep and shepherding and farming and the agrarian life. That's one of the great problems that we have today in reading the Bible. Is we have absolutely no memory most of us, of anything having to do with farms. And it's a real problem. So I'm not saying it doesn't matter to know the context, but I am saying don't allow that context to be used to intimidate you so you can't read your Bibles. Now let's move into the Apostle Paul going through the consequences. Whatever was going on in the Corinthian church, the denial of the resurrection had certain consequences that the Apostle Paul opens up. Remember, Enoch said you never miss the water until the well runs dry. Well, let's say the well of the resurrection runs dry. What would be the consequence? Verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Now, how would that make you feel? And it's a good question. How would it make you feel? If Jesus Christ was not raised, how would you feel about that? It's a good indication of the barometer of your soul, of your faith. Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then what? Not even Jesus Christ has been raised. In other words, it's absolutely impossible for us as believers, those of us who believe in Jesus, it's impossible for us not to be raised if Jesus Christ was raised. So if we're not raised, he wasn't raised. Why? Because we are united to him by faith. We're united to him. And so, if we're not raised, he wasn't raised. Because if he was raised, we are raised. You see? It's locked. You know how uh, when you were riding a bike when you were little before they, it's probably my days, not your days, but they used to sometimes not have uh, chain guards. What would happen if you rode with long pants, actually, one time this actually happened to my skin, not just my pants. <laughs> what would happen if all of a sudden you're pedaling and your pants get united to the chain? It's not good. And it wasn't good with my skin. I still have the scar. <laughs> you know, you can't separate yourself. What happens when you shove two boxcars together? At the slowest possible speed, slowest, one quarter of a mile an hour. This is the first thing they do when you get hired with Chicago Northwestern, when I worked for a while, is they'll take you out to the West Chicago Yards, they'll take two boxcars, they'll tie 
huge sandbags into the couplers after opening them. And then at a very slow pace, they'll shove those two cars together and just let them coast. And they'll just come, and that's your first lesson on the railroad. The sandbags aren't even there. The coupler just couples right through the sandbags, and you learn don't ever go between two railroad cars. Ever. Ever. We are united with Christ by faith. We cannot separate ourselves. If there is no resurrection, Jesus is not raised. That's the first consequence. That's the union with Christ. Second, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain or useless in the NIV. Your faith also is useless. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? What's the point of having faith in Christ if there is no resurrection? What's the point of believing in Jesus Christ if he does nothing for us? And if Christ has not been raised, he can't do anything for us. Verse 15, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. In other words, it's not just that your faith is useless and our preaching is useless, but it's also that I'm a liar. Why? Well, because the center of my proclamation is the forgiveness of sins and the hope of the resurrection. Now, am I lying about the cookie jar? Now, what am I lying about? I'm lying about eternity and God. How bad is that? It's pretty bad. Verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless And you are still in your sins. One Bible student says about this, no one can give himself to a dead man. No one can expect anything or receive anything from a dead man. And so there's an inseparable connection between life after death and the resurrection of our Lord. They stand or fall together. It isn't possible to believe in Jesus Christ without believing in his resurrection. It's not possible to follow him without following hard after the great hope of all believers in the resurrection of Christians into eternal life. Now, I want to direct your attention to the last part of verse 17, which really is the heart of the point that I believe we need to see in Scripture this morning. Look at verse 16 and 17 again. If the dead, for if the dead are not raised, verse 16, not even Christ has been raised, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Now, let me ask you a question. Remember how I said earlier that we don't have a problem with not believing in the resurrection? Most of us believe in the resurrection. What is our problem? Our problem really is that we have a cheap belief in the resurrection. That's really our problem. Why? 
Well, because in the ancient world, they were spiritual. You know how New Age people look at you and you'll say, you, you're a Christian? Well, no, I'm not a Christian, but I am spiritual. You've heard that, right? People have said that to you. In the ancient world, they were spiritual. They were not materialists. What are we today? We are materialists. And so most of us, if you ask us what is most precious about the resurrection, and I hadn't warned you not to answer this way, all right, I hadn't given you a clue, most of you would say that the reason that the resurrection is precious to you is because of the resurrection of the body. Because we will be reunited with our loved ones who have faith in Christ, although often even that qualifier is not added. Um, it's really the hope of the resurrection of the body. And can you really deny this? If you look at the amount of the gross domestic product that we spend for our health care, is it any question what our commitments are as a nation? You know, what is the new direction of IMA? You know, the new direction is what? Well, undoubtedly, as those of us who are baby boomers age, it will be gerontology, right? But actually, their new direction is cosmetic surgery. What is cosmetic surgery? What is it? It's just one more health care procedure that denies death, isn't it? Uh, it's Botox and things like that, but it's all a denial of death. It's erasing the wrinkles that the sun and life have caused us to have on our face. It's, you know, it's, it's manipulations of the body to what? To deny death. And so you look at the unbelievable amount of money we put into treatments of various kinds, the unbelievable amount of money invested in the pharmaceutical firms, uh, the, the, the amount of you know, the gross domestic product just in the city of Bloomington that goes into... The, the medical profession, um, I mean, it is mind-boggling. We have some reason to know, Mary Lee and I, uh, some of this uh, and how it works with Annie Lane. And it, it boggles your brain. And it's just like, as long as it's the government, just spend the money. You know, if the government's paying, you just spend the money. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars per month. Just spent the money, right? Why are we so heavily invested in medical care and the health care fields? Because we're materialists. And if you look at the end of verse 17, it gives us a hint of the error we're making because it says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless you will not rise from the dead. You will not escape the grave. You will not get a new body. You will not see your loved ones in heaven again. You will not finally escape the pain and suffering you had in the intensive care unit before you died. Now, what am I doing? I'm going through all of the different things that we today would focus on in the resurrection of the dead. And I know this because I hear you doing it. I hear it in the hospital, I hear it at the funeral, I hear it when somebody gets sick. And what people say is, his suffering is finally over. In other words, our whole focus about death and about the resurrection is physical. And it's our loved ones. You know what I don't hear? 
I don't hear people saying to me, finally, he is released from his sins. You say, well, no, I mean, but we all know it's true. We just don't mention it. And I say, oh, yeah. That's like telling a wife, well, honey, you know I love you. I just don't mention it. No, what we say is an indication of what our hearts are, what we believe. There's no question about this. You know what? You know why we don't carry the burden of our sins and why we don't think that the resurrection is precious about our sins? You know why this is, brothers and sisters? It's because we do not study our sin and we do not cultivate our confession of sin. We don't cultivate a knowledge of the holiness of God. But we do cultivate our knowledge of the brokenness of our bodies, don't we? Do you have any idea how miserable your body is? I mean, do you have any idea what that baby inside you is actually doing to you? It's hopeless. I'm talking to my daughter. It's hopeless. Life for you is over. And it's true. Women, before birth, after giving birth. Death and life. Now, it's, it's a good death. At least that's what their husbands tell them. It is true, though, that a woman that gives birth to a child is no longer her own. And any woman who's ever given birth knows this, right? Are any mother here going to argue with me? No. What is it? One of my favorite quotes, and uh, Varuni, just a classics scholar in our church, just recently found me the citation for this. But one of my favorite quotes is Lucretius. Do you want to quote it or should I quote it? All right, I'll do it. That... Uh, that the wail of the newborn is mingled with the dirge for the dead. I read that after one of the births of our children when I found myself crying and I observed my tears and my sadness from a distance. Tried to figure out what they were. At first I thought maybe they were sympathy for my wife and what she was going through, and I think that was part of it. But then I realized I was actually sad I mean, I was joyful, right? But I was sad for the baby. I really don't remember which child it was. Why are you sad for a baby being born? Have any of you ever cried at a wedding? We tell each other that it's joy, right? And it is. It is a joyful occasion. But it also is sadness, isn't it? Why? It's because we realize how sin is going to corrupt the man and the woman who have become one. Now you say corrupt, that's too strong a word. I say, okay, fine, whatever word you want to use, but you know what I'm talking about. We are not the same couple when we die that we were the day we got married. There is a reason why people say, well, the honeymoon is over. We hit the wall. Marriage is hard. Why is marriage hard? Marriage is hard because it's two sinners who are married. Right? It's not just your husband who's the sinner. It's 
Some of you won't get married because you know that's true. (laughs) And you'll be hanged if you're ever going to be joined to another sinner. You're enough of a sinner yourself. No, 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 I didn't say that. I'm not denying the joy of new birth, and I'm not denying the joy of a baby. I'm not denying the joy of marriage. But I am saying what? That we as Americans have been taught to be blind to sin and its consequences. And yet we are also taught to be very aware of all of the aspects of our physical health that are problematic. You watch any television show, open up any magazine, but especially Reader's Digest. And before you get done looking at that magazine, you won't believe how many problems you have physically. (laughs) Or problems that are about to come. (laughs) Or problems you didn't recognize what they were when you had them, but it's so good to know now. (laughs) But even our preachers are not to tell us what our sins are. As a matter of fact, the one rule that preachers have is to not mention sin. And any preacher that said that he had a mission from God to open his people's eyes to their sin would be viewed as a fully twisted man. Now listen, dear friends and brothers and sisters, I want you to realize something. I want you to realize that without a deep and intimate knowledge of your sin, the resurrection is absolutely meaningless to you. But once you do understand your sin, the resurrection is the only antidote. And death becomes precious. Why? Because death ushers you from the brokenness of this life into full, final union with Jesus Christ. And then, Christians desire three things with regard to sin. Justification that it doesn't... Come on, I keep trying to get you to memorize this. Justification that it doesn't... Condemn. Did you say that? Who said condemn? I love you. I love you all that said it. Christians desire three things with regard to sin. Justification that it doesn't condemn. Sanctification that it doesn't reign. And it's not the pitter-patter. It's the king reigning. All right. And, come on, glorification that it might not be. Does your heart ache for the day when sin in your heart, not your wife's, not your children, when your heart will be done with sin? You know, if I were to get up here and tell you that I had a surefire cure for cancer, pancreatic cancer, honestly, what would you be willing to give me for that cure? I'll bet you'd find every rich friend you had, and you might even try to get a hold of Bill Gates. Warren Buffett is done now. But Bill Gates, he still has a lot. 
You'd spend any, any price you could, but what if I told you that I had a cure for sin? How many of you would be buyers? How many of you mourn and grieve over your sin? You know what I do? I pray about Taylor that God will cause him to mourn and grieve over and hate his sin. I pray for that. Do you think I'm twisted? Thank you, John. You know why I pray for that? Because I know he won't love Jesus until he grieves over his sin and hates it. And so, you look at this verse and it says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And that's the worst thing that could possibly happen to us. That we're still in our sin. And so, my message for you this Easter morning is that the resurrection of the body is precious, but infinitely more precious is the resurrection to holiness and to the glory of union with Christ that will be in heaven. And if your heart grieves over your sin, and just a word here for those of you that have learned to silence your heart, don't do that. Don't do that. That's the greatest sorrow I see as a pastor, is I see a constant stream of people who uh, do everything they can to escape the knowledge of their own sin. And it's just so, so sad. People come to our church and they, they, they react very negatively to us having elders lead us in prayer, confessing our sins to God. They think that that's evil and that we shouldn't do it. And what's really going on there is that America has taught us to be upbeat and to not have any tolerance for any negative messages spiritually. And listen, it is a joy to hear my sins named in prayer by my leader, my elder, and then to hear the promise of forgiveness for those sins. It's precious. So if you have a tendency to try to silence your conscience and to dull it through drugs or alcohol or fishing, really, fishing, or novels, or Quentin Tarantino flicks. Don't do it. If you have a tendency to dull your conscience by going to a church where there's a nice message for the week, don't do it. Find perfect pitch. Perfect pitch. And then look through the eyes of Scripture and the preaching of the Word, at your heart, what it really is, and then rejoice. Because Jesus said what? He said, I did not come for, the, for what? For the righteous, but I came for, for sinners. And so if you're on a pilgrimage where your sin is becoming clear to you, that's when you begin to have joy. That's when you begin to appreciate and to love and to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us that the sting of death will be gone. What is the sting of death? You go over to Bloomington Hospital, you know what they'll tell you the sting of death is? It's pain. And they'll give you morphine. And if the pain gets too bad, they'll increase the morphine until all your vital functions stop. Okay? But that's not the sting of death, is it? What is the sting of death? It says in Corinthians that the sting of death is sin. It's not our physical suffering. It's sin. You know, if you think about... um, If you think about being a servant, and again, it's very difficult for us to even think in terms of Lord is master, slave, servant, all that language that that permeates the New Testament about our relationship with Jesus. He's our Lord. What's a Lord? I don't have a Lord. You have a Lord. Well, some of you that are married should have one, but even that is killed today. I'm actually quoting scripture, but you don't know that. (laughs) Somebody tell us, what am I quoting? Yep, it says Sarah called Abraham Lord, and the Bible commends her for doing that. All right, but we don't we don't believe in lords. That's one of the progressions of our culture. We don't have lords anymore, right? If you look at your heart and you think about what it is to have a lord, what it is to have a master, what it is to be a servant, you realize that wherever the servant goes, the servant suffers the master's fate, right? If the master gets on a ship that's going to be shipwrecked, the servant will be shipwrecked with the master. But if the master is on a safe ship, the servant will be safe. Realize that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, his victory is your victory. doesn't matter what Satan says to you. Satan will say, oh, your sin makes you hopeless. No, it doesn't make you hopeless at all. You're just a boringly normal sinner. And Jesus is risen from the dead. And that means you, (laughs) me, (laughs) we will be raised from the dead. The sting of death is gone because we're in Christ. And yes, I know what you're like. I know how awful you are. You know why? Because I know how awful I am. And you know something? Neither you nor I have any idea how awful we are compared to the perfect vision of the Holy Spirit of our hearts. And we are the ones that Jesus said he came to save. And we are the ones that are promised resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, that you vindicated him. We thank you that you have given him a name that is above every name. We thank you for these verses in 1 Corinthians 15 that make it so clear that all of the authority and power of this earth will be placed at the feet of Jesus. Father, we pray that you will help us to take glory in forgiveness of sins and that we won't accept any cheap counterfeit. We pray that those who deaden their consciences through alcohol and drugs and lust and fishing, Lord, we pray that you will forgive us of this, that we will have victory over 
all the idols that seek to seduce us away from Jesus and that we will truly be united with him by faith and that we may be gathered together with all your saints on that great and glorious day when Jesus returns. We pray this in his name. Amen.